Hi, I'm Millie Thomas, an eating disorder recovery coach. We've created this podcast to raise awareness about all types of eating disorders and help dispel some of the many myths and stigma that unfortunately still surround them. It feels like it's like a drug. You know it's bad because you know like this is hurting me, but it somehow makes you feel like you're doing something right. My eating disorder started at seven. You get to that point where you're just, you just don't know what to do. This is the End Eating Disorders Podcast, brought to you by BCU, customer-owned banking for you. It's been a long and at times slow process. <sighs> the eating disorder's in charge and your daughter's not there. Find someone that you trust more than you trust your eating disorder self. I was in tears and I was screaming at the nurses, give me something to eat. My baby is kicking me. You cannot do this to this life that has no voice yet. There is hope. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have got the wonderful Sam Ruff here to talk all about bigorexia, body dysmorphia, and body acceptance. Thanks so much for joining me today, Sam. It's so nice Absolute to have you Absolute pleasure. Here. Yeah, thank you for bringing me on. I want to give the listeners a little bit of an idea of your journey and what you've struggled with in terms of body image. So do you just want to give us a little bit of an overview of how things evolved for you? Absolutely. Yeah. So for me, issues with body image probably start at the typical younger age of 15 when you first start, you know, going through puberty, having those insecurities arise and comparing yourself to other people. I think for me being immersed and growing up in the the age of the internet, I was immersed really deeply into that comparative mindset of looking at other people, wanting to look a certain way. That tends to be quite a common trend, but unfortunately, I think some people get deeply, deeply into that and it infiltrates their mind and takes over their, becomes an axiom that they base their experience off. So for me, I unfortunately was exposed to various videos throughout my time going through high school while also sort of fueling that comparative mindset of comparing myself to other people in my age group who were particularly in my case, like more muscular, more aesthetically appealing and that that sort of thing, coupled with watching videos on YouTube of people saying that like, okay, if you get big, if you get muscular, it's going to be the answer to all of your problems. I sort of partially believe that. And so I started weightlifting about at 15 years of age, going to the gym five days per week. And became a big part of my life was nutrition, training at the gym. And while I was getting bigger and I was getting stronger, more aesthetic, I I did actually make a lot of progress. I felt mentally never like I was looking good enough. And that progressed with me all the way until through university where I finally realized something had to change, a mindset change, which I came to realize throughout the following years from 21 and onward that the root issue is in the mind and not the way that you look. So you have to address the mind issue. So that's sort of where I'm at. And now I'm getting to a stage where 
while it still creeps in, sometimes I'll look at myself in the mirror and it'll be like, oh, wow, you're not looking that way. But I'm able to catch that quickly and let go of it. So it's still an ongoing process, but largely I know that it's just a sort of story. So it's just like eliminating that and letting it go whenever it comes up. What was the catalyst for you realizing that it was in your mind that things needed to change? Was there a pivotal moment or something that happened that triggered that for you? So I initially, when I realized at about, as I said, about 21 years of age, having realized something had to change, I sort of took a journey of introspection. I started doing a lot of avenues of sort of inner work and that manifested as doing men's work. So I started doing that, getting myself involved with circles of men. And the the fact that there was a platform to have authentic dialogue sort of made me realize that a lot of other men are also also have issues with, you know, they have their own issues with body acceptance. Well, not just body acceptance, so <laughs> we won't leave it at that. But, you know, and just the fact that a lot of other men are going through issues in their life of various magnitudes of different different facets made me sort of realize like, okay, like we're all screwed up in our own way, right? Uh, what else? And then after that, another journey, like sort of step of introspection was doing a 10-day silent Vipassana meditation retreat. In these retreats, you're basically left only with your mind for 10 days. So there's no distractions, you're not allowed to take in anything, you're not allowed to talk to anyone, and you're only left with your mind. And to be able to see thoughts, very subtle thoughts coming up of like, oh, you need to be looking a certain way or behaving a certain way, you know, that sort of gave me the scope. Just just putting a lens on how my mind was operating, which was previously unconscious. Wow. Yeah. Where did you do the meditation retreat? Up at uh, Pomona on the Sunshine Coast. I would highly recommend it. <laughs> Yeah, there's a place called Dharma Razmi, Razmi, which means ray of sunshine. And it's, uh, yeah. What influence did social media have? Mm. <laughs> yeah, have on, on your ability to, to accept your body and what you, I guess, also like what you thought was aesthetically pleasing. I think it's so interesting that you said, you know, before you're like, well, what was more aesthetic? And it's like, says who? I'm reading a book at the moment and, and we, you know, they talk about that and they're saying, well, there is this ideal out there for men just as there is for women mm, um, in terms absolutely. of what is attractive and, and, and appealing. So mm. yeah. Did social media have, have a big part to play in the development of, or, you know, you feeling like you needed to somehow change yourself? I think so. Yeah, absolutely. I think in retrospect, now that I've, I look back on my life when I was 15, I think it played a big part. At the time, I was unconsciously drawing comparisons from other people. And I'll use the example, I'm sure quite a few, particularly if there's younger listeners, maybe even some people who are quite older listening, but there was a certain model. uh, There was a guy in Australia called Ziz, who I looked up to. And he basically sold that idea of, if you can get a good body, it's going to solve all of your problems in the world, right? So... He, here's this guy who has perfect proportions, genetic proportions. He looks like an inverted triangle, basically. <laughs> yeah, and you compare yourself to that. And that's just one example. But, you know, looking at particularly other people in my grade, like people who also have good proportions and 
and all that sort of stuff. It really was like, holy crap. Just, I think that sort of fueled that. I, I want that. Even though I might not have known at the time and you subtly draw those comparisons and then that becomes the basis for your motive for wanting to do fitness and it's for the wrong reasons. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it played a big, a big role. I'm pretty, I'm almost certain. Yeah. And when you say, you know, that's what you wanted, like, I want that. What was it? Why? Like, what was the reason why? Mm. Like, why did you want that? What did you think that it was going to give you? Good question. So I think for me, initially it started off as a thing to get girls (laughs) (laughs) to, yeah, to, I suppose to be more liked as well, to show that I'm different and I, I can I can be better, I suppose. And I think what the consequence of that was creating a bit of identity in it. I sort of had it, people were liking me for the way I looked more than who I was. And it's so interesting though, isn't it? Because it's the reason why you thought that that was going to do that for you was because of our culture Mm. that basically, you know, dictates that it is about image and is that very, very much diet culture saturated body image obsessed society that we live in. Mm. Whereas if you, if we weren't existing in a society that prized that, then, you know, perhaps you wouldn't have had that idea that, okay, this is, you know, something that I need, need to do in order to get girls. If our, we were more values based in terms of, you know, what do you like to do with your time? What do you know? like how loving are you? Are, you know, are you funny? All of those things mm-hmm. rather than it all being a looks-based thing. And I think now I also like with, with the online like dating apps and things like that, it is oh, yeah. all about whatever that photo is on there. Most people don't look even at your descriptions or whatever. And I just think it's, I just think it's toxic because it just it continues to make people feel like it is all about how you look. Yeah. And one of the healthiest things I did personally was eliminating social media, getting rid of it completely to all, not completely. I will say that occasionally using things like Instagram, but limiting myself and unfollowing all the people who don't add value to your life. I found from my experience that when I would be, I'll use this as an example, right? I went back on my old Instagram account recently and just, I don't know, must've been in a mood where I thought it would be okay to, to go through. And because the past in a meditation retreat, I have so much internal awareness of what's going on in my mind now. And I, able to notice just like, wow, instantly the comparative mind state kicking in. And I think people get so used to that comparative mind state. And it's, uh, it creates like a background hum of anxiety in a way, almost like the fridge in the kitchen, sort of like a hum. And then until you switch social media off and you turn off social media, you don't realize it's like, oh, <laughs> you know, like, wow. But that's, that's my experience. Maybe other people can relate, but yeah. And absolutely. And just as well, speaking about, you know, value-based stuff, I've heard quite a bit from people like you draw comparisons from the East, Eastern view of the world to the Western view, which we are obviously. And Tibetans almost have a non, like self-deprecation and comparing yourself to others is almost unheard of over there. So it's uh, definitely a product of, uh, you know, social media and lots of other elements too that contribute to it. Tinder as well, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah. It doesn't matter whether it's Tinder, whether it's Bumble, whether it's Hinge, whatever it is. It's the same. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Same thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Now, you touched on before a little bit about where you're at now in terms of, of body acceptance. So you're sort of saying yep. that it's still a bit of a struggle for you. Where are you at with it now? And what are your strategies for dealing with it if you do feel like you're going down a bit of a rabbit hole? Okay. My strategies. There's quite a few that I've sort of accrued over the over the years now. One of the most effective things I've been doing has been to whenever I catch myself looking into the mirror and have and that little voice comes on, like, oh, you gotta, you know, you have to pose this way to look good. Just checking yourself out, trying different poses. I, I try and catch that voice and I see it and I'm like, okay. I'm going to let that go. This isn't me. So I have a belief that over our year, we sort of accumulate all sorts of conditioning and it develops neural pathways in our brain. The more that we can continue to let go of them, the weaker and weaker those become. Mindfulness has been one of those tools that has allowed me to pick up on those sort of subtle thoughts that tell me that I need to check myself out in the mirror. Oh, how's my hair looking or something like that, you know? And I can then let go of it. So just say almost as an umbrella term that I use mindfulness as my primary way of dealing with it when those thoughts come up. But um, yeah, there's all sorts of reframings and stuff like that as well that I tend to use. Like this is going to sound morbid, but things like contemplation of death, right? If I look, if I was on my deathbed looking back on my life, would I really care how I, how I look? Yes. And like, that's been profound. That's been profound to do that. In terms of how am I dealing with it now? Sometimes when I'm in a particularly maybe down mood, they might creep in and I might, you know, fall into my old habit patterns. But it's it's becoming easier to see that story of all that conditioning that's accrued and let go of it. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think it's harder as a man to struggle with, well, for both like young boys and men, to struggle with body image issues because of the societal idea out there that primarily something that women struggle with? Um, and obviously when we see it in the media more, I mean, we are starting to see more media reporting on body image issues amongst men, but often they sometimes focus just on gay men. So do you think that's made it harder for people who possibly are struggling to reach out for support because they feel like it's not something that they should be struggling with? Yeah, well, we definitely have a macho culture where if you show any sort of insecurities, anything like that, it can definitely, you know, you look weak is a sort of stigma if you if you come out and talk authentically. And if men's work has taught me anything is that, Basically, all men are going through shit. Some people are just better at hiding it than others. So it's it's definitely difficult for men to come out. But there are spaces that facilitate for that if you're ready to sort of drop that mask that so many people have up. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely difficult. And yeah, even even doing this sort of stuff and talking about it, there's still fear for me. But I hope that it gives value to people, you know. So, uh, yeah, I would say it's definitely difficult. What when you say there's still fear there? Fear of fear of what? Fear of judgment or stigma or? Yeah, yeah. Like again, it's that thought coming up that that old conditioning from what I've experienced in my personal growth. We're all messed up in our own ways, but so that oh, that that kicks in, and it, it just you know it's it's a constant act of letting that go and just being real. 
Yeah. And yeah. It's, it comes back to that power of vulnerability. I mean, yeah. it is yeah. so powerful. And I think, you know, the voice of lived experience in all of these spaces is so important, um, especially when it comes to mental health even more so with men in this realm of eating disorders, body image, all of that, all of that stuff. So thank you. Thank you for, you know, having the bravery to talk about it. And when you talk about the men's, the men's work, can you just elaborate a little bit on that? So I, I went through the Mankind Project, basically, you know, a weekly group where there's a certain structure that you go through. They have this thing called the new warrior training where it's really confronting all of your old conditioning and past fears. So that's one of this this sort of hardcore personal development weekend that I did. But on a more general basis, you know, it's like a weekly thing where you get around in a circle of men, 20 people, depending on the club, they're everywhere and all over the world, actually. But yeah, it's just sitting down in a structured way, working through in a circle, just sort of slowly warming up and just saying, okay, what am I checking in with right now? maybe fear, maybe anger, sadness, and just beginning to open that authentic dialogue and then getting a bit deeper if you want to and just talking, okay, I've, I've got this going on in my life. Here's, uh, and then having that support and realizing that everyone is also in a pretty similar boat to you is really cool. So that's sort of what the men's work is. Okay, so it's the power yeah. of connection. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah, just shared vulnerability and finding connection in that, yeah. Yeah, that's so neat. I hadn't I hadn't heard about them before, so it's really it's great to know that they, that's out there. Yeah, oh, there's there's quite a few. That's that's just the one I use, but it's really really valuable. Now, in terms of gym culture, um, that obviously played played a part in your journey as well. Yes. What do you feel needs to change in terms of how gyms? approach things like this say if someone was struggling with with body image or taking things to the extreme because often that in gyms is actually encouraged and it's all part of this new vernacular that we have around clean eating and bulking up and as you say that whole sort of macho culture and bigger is better what do you think gyms could do to make it a safer environment and and to keep people from sort of falling into the clutches of body dysmorphia and or big or bigorexia it's an interesting question, Millie. I've never actually really considered that. I think what first came to mind was what they're doing with schools. Obviously, there's a huge mental health crisis with schools and they have counsellors available for that. I'm wondering maybe if there was some sort of support structure, like if you are struggling with this, maybe making some more awareness around that, whether that manifests as like posters or, or whatever. But I think one of the things that I get frustrated with is sort of bodybuilding competitions this is personal preference. And obviously, if anyone's into bodybuilding, it's absolutely an incredible thing to pursue. And I, I think fitness is incredible. But the, I think the issue becomes apparent when you get that wrong seed of motivation. What are you actually doing it for? And I think what are the thing when you look at bodybuilding competitions, there's that incessant comparing mind that can kick in. Other people could just be genetically superior with a really thin waist and broad shoulders. And while genetics, obviously, if you have to work hard and you have to, if you want to get results and that's very admirable, but I would just be very careful in bringing more awareness to that. And it would be great if there would be more awareness to that, like of assessing motivation for actually partaking in those sorts of things. I've known quite a few people who get into bodybuilding and they put on this facade of like, I'm so happy. I'm so, every life's perfect. And then beneath that, it's like, 
it crumbles. They have this shaky foundation of why they're doing bodybuilding. And yeah, the comparative mindset kicks in like crazy. So more awareness around mental health, because especially with men, they find it difficult. Like even seeing a counselor might be a massive leap for someone. So it's a tricky issue, but yeah, more awareness and potential avenues to give people a route to things like counseling may be the answer, but yeah, it's a pretty tricky issue for sure. I think you're right with what are you doing it for? Because I know, you know, there are many people who who I've known that have come out of eating disorders and and recovered, so to speak, and then have gone straight into doing bodybuilding. And, or for example, you know, ballet dancers, all of those different things, um, gymnasts. And are you doing it because that allows you to continue to have a particular type of physique or are you actually doing it because you're enjoying it? Also, people's lives get consumed by those things because of the rigidity of what they have to consume. And Definitely, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, like got to have perfect amount of calories, otherwise I'm a failure. Mm. It's like, well, hold on. No, you're not a failure. <laughs> let's take a look at that. Let's uh, Let's break that down a little bit. And, you know, it might, then it eventually comes back to that comparative mindset potentially, you know, you, you know, obviously different on a person to person basis. Yeah, absolutely. What was the most valuable thing that this whole journey towards self-acceptance has taught you? Wow. I think I'm grateful for the fact that I struggled because without struggle, you don't have the incentive to want to improve. It's also taught me to be more vulnerable. I used to be quite closed off and doing this sort of thing and talking about this sort of stuff, you know, three years ago, I would have just curled up into a little ball. So being vulnerable and it's okay to have have flaws and talk about them, right? I agree with you on opening mm. up and rather than sort of shutting down and because I think when we shut down and we don't allow ourselves to be open, that's when things get can get quite dark. And I think in sharing also there is that huge power in helping others. I know for me when I opened up about my story for the first time and I realized just how many people it resonated with. There is this feeling of, okay, there is a reason, you know, for the struggle. And I think like you, I feel grateful. I feel really grateful that, that, that I had that struggle. No, I can't say that in those, you know, 15 years that I was unwell, that I felt that and was like, I'm really grateful for this right now because it's not, not when you're in it, but upon reflection, there is, there's a lot of gratitude for it and what you learn along the way. Yeah. And now you're networked with an incredible group of people. I'm sure that sort of share similar values of authenticity that gives you the platform to be yourself and actually be yourself, not put on a mask. Right. I will say though that like, you know, that's not, it's not easy to come out and like baby steps, right? Like seeing a counselor was one of the pivotal points, I think for me, just like once you open that dialogue for the first time, it's, it gets a lot easier and it's very safe to do so. From what I've been told, a lot of people, as soon as they, they finally get into a counseling room and I know it was the case for me and it was pretty scary to, to, to sit down with a counselor and have him ask really penetrating questions and cutting through the smoke screens. But then it's like, when you walk out of that, you're like, oh, wow, awesome. <laughs> that I know I, like, okay, there's a problem and now I can move forward and work on it. So, yeah. Yeah. The, the best, the best counselors or therapists are the ones that really basically cut through the bullshit yes. <laughs> and get right to the core of, I, I remember that was what it was yeah. like when I started seeing um, my NLP therapist, you know, and it was yeah. like, 
okay, this is the stuff that I'm going to have to work on to change these neural pathways. But like mm. you said, and that's what it's all about. But I think there's a great power in knowing that you can, you can change your brain. Yeah, it just takes time. Some days you're going to have bad days and it's you're going to feel less incentive. But overall trend, as long as you're moving forward, even if it means going two, two steps forward, one back, two up, you're still going up. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Got to look at the overall trend. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, What sure. What would you say to people who might have, say, a husband, a brother, a son mm. who is struggling or they think that they might be struggling with body image or self-acceptance? What would be your advice on how best to support them? Right. So the biggest thing I've learned is to not try and fix people because that's the lot. You don't want to proselytize how you have the, the solution for their problem. I think giving them, asking them questions and being genuine with your questions, like how are you actually doing? And uh, I think there's a quote. It's like, I had the best day today. Someone asked me how their day was and they actually meant it. When, when people, when you ask someone a question, how are you doing? How are you dealing? If you can sense that they're feeling upset, if you're not coming from a genuine place, it won't land on them and it won't allow them and give them the platform to answer properly. So having that genuine curiosity, I think, and asking them, how are you doing? And that, that might be difficult. I mean, especially if you're a, a father and you have a son who's like, you know, it's a quite a jaded relationship at times, there might be a construct of, oh, I can't speak in this way to my son, you know? So you, you're, it's going to take courage for you to ask the question. But, you know, if you, I think if you keep showing that genuine curiosity and willingness that you, you actually are there, that you can be a platform for them to have a dialogue about things, eventually that'll open up. And yeah, I think just not trying to fix and asking genuine questions that can really do wonders for people when you really care in your journey, did anyone try and help you or try and point things out to you? And, you know, was there moments where that happened where you possibly thought, oh, is there a problem, but sort of glossed over it and thought, no, no, I'm fine. Tell you what, not really. No, I don't think so. What gave me the sort of platform to do that was to was through YouTube videos, actually, self-help YouTube videos. People like Jordan Peterson and like Joe Rogan and Particularly Jordan Peterson was a huge influence for me. He's a clinical psychologist who's really had a massive impact, particularly on young men. But nonetheless, yeah, that sort of um, finding my own way and through that influence on YouTube videos, realizing I had to take action if something wanted to, if it was to change was the biggest thing. But I don't think I ever had anyone pull me aside and be like, what's actually going on, man? Like, wh- what are you doing this for? No, I never had that. But that all that could also be because I was so good at hiding it. I had such a well-constructed mask that people didn't think there was anything wrong. And that's the danger. So I think you got to ask yourself, like, am I actually okay? You know? yeah, and it's also probably a culmination of, of you being able to hide it well, but then also the culture that we live in. Because so oh, many yeah, sure. behaviours that could be deemed disordered are actually just half of the course in, in society at the moment. And I was also reading something the other day where they were talking about how eating habits of men, say, for example, Jack Dorsey, who t- founded Twitter, and the way that he fasts, for example, it's sort of like this, wow, and this whole sort of Silicon Valley mentality of they do this and that makes their brains really honed. And Whereas if a woman was doing that, they'd be like, well, she has an eating disorder. So there seems to be this double standard really? for, okay. yeah. for men in terms of their their 
their habits around food um, and nutrition. Um, whereas it would be different if, if a woman didn't. I just think that's interesting to see that there's sort of a double standard, so to speak. That's really interesting. I've never actually been aware of that. I've always thought like fasting, yeah, it's fine. Like, so it's it's quite an issue for women, is it? Like it's like oh, you've got a problem if you if you're fasting from what you've seen. Well, I guess it depends on the person yeah. and how they're doing it. For example, someone who's susceptible to developing an eating disorder who's going and doing fasting, then obviously you know that that can be problematic. And in terms of if they're constantly doing you know, these extreme fasts, I mean, yes, it would mm. be considered. Maybe they wouldn't consider it anorexia. They would more consider it orthorexia, just dependent on what the behaviours were. But, yes, I think mm. that people would point that out as being disordered. Wow, interesting. And yeah. look, some people can can do that and and it's not a problem and that's the way, that's their lifestyle and, and, and it's obviously, you know, a choice. But for some people, you know, they can't do it without it becoming an absolute obsession that – doesn't allow them to actually participate fully in life because yeah. it doesn't allow them to be spontaneous. It doesn't allow them to be social. And I think when your focus on food or your body, whether it's exercise, starts to encroach on your ability to do your normal life things, and I think, yeah, that is that is an issue because it, the definition of full recovery that Carolyn Costin uses talks about the fact that your body weight and shape and exercise should take just a very normal space in your life rather than it being absolute top of, of the hierarchy of needs. So yeah. I mean, unless you're a professional and then that's where, but even still, you've got to be, have a close wrap on that. Have it, make sure you have a good mentor. Like, okay. Making sure. What are you doing this for, bud? Checking in. Uh, absolutely. I mean, for bodybuilding, it can become an obsession and wish it certainly did for me. I mean, it was never critically bad. Like I can't say for like, I would, I would be counting my calories to the like the exact calorie every day or anything like that but hitting your macros and that sort of stuff was you know pretty pretty big deal and I would be like forcing food down my throat at night time <laughs> if there's one thing that you want to leave our listeners with you know words of wisdom so to speak what would it be turn inward turn inward and ask yourself what am I doing this for and give yourself the opportunity to open up and be real with someone. If it really is a problem, like if it really is a problem, it's okay to open up and talk to someone. And there's safe places to do that. You, you can see a counselor, you can see a psychologist and they're trained to do that. So go ahead with it. It's not just your life that matters, but it's also you're networked with a bunch of people, right? You're a node in a network. And if you don't take the responsibility to fix the issue, then you're actually impacting other people as well and not taking action. So I would say turn inward. That's the most important thing you can do for sure. I love that. I love that. Thank you so much, Sam, for joining Thank me Thank you, Millie. No, my pleasure. It's I been really good. I know that lots of the stuff that you have, have touched on is going to help so many people. The more that we can get men and boys talking about these things and making it more normalized the better because it literally will save lives absolutely yeah i'm very grateful to be here and i'm very thankful that you brought me on thank you so much there is hope at ended.org.au this is the end eating disorders podcast brought to you by bcu customer-owned banking for you
This is a Cast Co Media production.